Welcome to Pint with Shawnee B, coming to you from the Courthouse Hotel in London. This was picked by my guest. I didn't really know an awful lot about it. It's the famous courthouse where Oscar Wilde, Mick Jagger, Christine Keeler, it's the sort of celebrity courthouse in yeah. London. And I think they closed it about 20 or 15 years ago and turned it into a five-star hotel. And we're in a downstairs part on a couple of couches, so it's a bit boomy and it's all going to add to the ambience of London in March. I have a Mr. London kind of thing as a guest today. He's a prolific writer. Uh, he used to work with the NME, Music Express. He's all into music, fashion. He's written books about the Beatles, David Bowie, Paul Weller, The Jam, Oasis, you name it. And he's recently written a book for his young son, which we'll talk about as well. I'm mm-hmm. welcoming Paolo Hewitt. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Your first podcast? I bet No, not. no, no. I do a... Uh, loads, I'd say. <laughs> I do a Spurs one. The Spurs show? Yeah, the Spurs oh, show. Oh, my second guest from the Spurs show. There you go. That must, be, must mean something. Yeah. I wanted to start by talking to you, and I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but it okay. was certainly one of the things that most interested me Okay. was your childhood. I have a lot of people on here who are lonely children. I have a lot of people on here, we, not by choice, by accident, mm-hmm. who've lived uh, independent lives, who've had to struggle when they were teenagers or mm-hmm. kids. Tell me your story about you... you your child, very early childhood. And well, the first, the first thing I would say about it, I was taken away from my mother after two days. I lived with a, a foster mother who was, she made uh, Cruella de Vil look like a good bet, right? She was completely lunatic. And then I went into the children's home. But as the years have passed, I am so glad that I was brought up in the children's home. Yeah. And I, I don't say that in a kind of defensive or in a way to cover up things. But as time has gone past, two things have come to realise. One, it gave me a lot of stuff which maybe I wouldn't have got within a family unit. And two, sometimes when I sit with my friends and I hear them talking about their families, I think, thank God I was brought up in a children's yeah. home, man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, seriously. Because the thing about children's home is that on a psychic level, we all knew that we were, you know... Odd bunch. Yeah. yeah. We, 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 yeah. We didn't have any expectations. We didn't think, oh, my mum will do this or my dad will do that. It was like, we are... Can we swear on this? Of course, it's a podcast. We are fucked, yeah, right? Yeah. Kids who get put in boarding schools, mm. right? I, so I look at it and I think, they've got a mum and dad. They wake up, they've got a mum and dad who are 100 miles away paying yeah. for them not to yeah. live with their mum and dad. I know, So, okay, let's start. In 1947, my mother is in Naples, in Sorrento, which is a beautiful part of the world. Hence the Paolo. Exactly. Right. And she falls in love with a British soldier called Hewitt. Any relation to Major James? No, but I always wish I'd kept that headline yeah. in the News of the World in 1995, which read, I saw Hewitt's hand up dice skirt. <laughs> I thought, damn, I should have kept that. But I didn't because of this reason. My mum marries this guy. They have two children, two daughters, Frankie and Nina. Then my mum has a breakdown in 1952. They put in a mental hospital in East Grinstead, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the thing about it is, if it happened today, she would get Prozac, a social worker, and within three months, she'd be back on her feet. Yeah. But obviously, darker times. She lived there for 40 years. What? Yes, she was there. She... Electric treatment, all that stuff. Oh, I don't know. Her? No, she, yeah, 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 yeah. She didn't have electric treatment. They just drugged her up. Really? Right. And I read her, her court, her file report. Yeah. When they interviewed her, they didn't even have a translator there. She didn't speak English, much English. Now, you're asking somebody about their deepest thoughts. And yeah, yeah. It was very, very dark for her. Very dark for her. 
Anyway, in 57, she had an affair with someone. She never told me who. 58, July 58, I'm born. Right, and it's a big scandal at the hospital, right? Yeah. Because it's like you can't be having. I was in the hospital. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because she's she's yeah. a long-term patient, so I was whisked away and put into care. And they kept on asking who the father was, but she wouldn't tell him because I I think she did it as this kind of act of defiance. She hated him so much. These yeah. people who were like keeping her there that she was like, yeah, yeah. "Fuck you, I'm not telling you." When I got to ask her many many years later, I I, I met her when I was ten. So basically, I went into care, and then when I was four, I was fostered by this woman who was... She was beating you up, basically. Beating me up, yeah. locking me in cupboards, putting a lock on the outside of my bedroom, tying my wrists up at night. Did she have kids? No, no, she couldn't have kids. You know, the thing is, so I wrote a book about it called Looked After Kid, and I write about this in that, where I say that she would call up the social services and she would ask for another child, but it was like she was ordering pizza. Oh, um, could I have... Uh, yeah, I'd like... Yeah, they can be Indian. I don't want black. Can we have Indian? Clever, a bit of Chinese. mushroom on top. <laughs> you know, a bit of pepperoni. Have a year and half an you hour. You know, like, yeah, exactly. Is that Uber? You know. That's terrible. <laughs> terrible. But that's what it was like in those days. Well, can you, have you got memories of the, the, that time before, when you were four? My first memory is me looking down on myself. I was in this nursery and I was looking down on myself. And I told that to a psychologist, and they went, oh, my God, you know, your whole life you've had to kind of come back to yourself. <laughs> I thought it was quite cool, because I've, I've had two out-of-body experiences. It was when I was six or seven, they would talk about this mother I had who was Italian, and it made no sense to me. She was over there somewhere, you know. But I knew I was in a bad place when she started beating me and, yeah. you know, being really cruel and vindictive. It's when I look back, even though, even like, you know what you like when you're a kid? You yeah. don't want to hang out. If you're 11, you're not hanging out with the eight year olds. You want to no, hang out with the 14 year olds because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. far more interesting yeah. what's going on there. But even those eight year olds, you know, now I look back and think, oh, yeah, little Freddie Purvis and David Westbrook, they were all there and they were all like our little brothers, you know, and that's what I had. We had and you were cared for, or were you? We were. In the home? No. We, I, I called the book The Looked After Kid because I'd never heard the term before. And it struck me as very ironic because you had, you were looked after, you had a roof over your head and you had food in front of you. Mm -hmm. But you weren't looked after in terms of how you're feeling, you know, what you're doing, how are you. Mm -hmm. But where you got it was where you got your sustenance as the kids. Yeah. And Uh, how was school for you given that you were from the... the, I loved it. You know why? Because I I was the odd one out. I loved it. And you weren't bullied, right? I was, no, no, no. I was on the outside. I don't know, it was funny, because all the kids around about 13, 14, all my mates, they kind of got into that suede head look, state press, crombies and all that, and I couldn't afford it, but they kind of let me still be part of the gang, do you know what I mean? So I felt, well, I must be okay. I think think that that generation, then there became a a time probably when I were, I think I'm 10 years and two days, I was 9th of July, 1968. Oh, okay. So we're a generation (laughs) gap. In Dublin in the 70s, kids like you would have been bullied in my class. Why? You know, because you're no one. You know, just stupid things kids would say, but they they'd attack. You know, and they. Oh what? Well, because um, just because you're yeah. Well, because I'm from a children's and daddy and your children. Yeah, exactly. And oh, I think, I'd have loved all that. I think to be uh, <laughs> a scrapper. No, I wouldn't have fight her, but I yeah. would have yeah back. Yeah, yeah, I would have done definitely because that's what you do at a children's home. And I think today's seven, eight, ten-year-old mm. children are more like your crew in a yeah. sense that they're more tolerant. They look after each other. They realize that we're leaving a mess for them 
Yeah. Um, and they're more sexually, they're, they're more t- tolerant about people who are... Well, I'll tell you what, did you see that thing in The Observer? And it was brilliant. Some guy, some professor about three months ago said that the voting age should drop down to 10. You yeah, could be 10 yeah. years of age. I agree. So The Observer asked all these 10-year-olds, the two things they talked about, climate change, we've got to stop that, and Brexit, we've got to stop that. Yeah. But the best quote, and I think he was a kid in Ireland, he said, this Donald Trump, he keeps on about building a wall to make the world a safer place. I think if we build a wall around him, that would make the world a much safer place. Better than the babes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's that Swedish girl who's kind of spearheading. Oh, yeah, she's brilliant. She's yeah, a genius. She was, I, I lo- it's the only little flicker of hope with Brexit and yeah, Trump and, and yeah, the mayhem that yeah. uh, stuck in our mobile phones. We, you know, I yeah. See. I say in the Colour Me Father book that 40 years ago, mm. right, I was living under a lunatic American president called Ronald Reagan, a right-wing fanatic called Maggie Thatcher, and an ineffectual left-wing Labour leader called Michael... Michael Foote. Right. Forty years later, I am living under a right man... The world, yeah. you know, the, the idea that the, Trump the world calls keeps this turning. is wrong. No, this no. has been a slide into no, the it's just, it's just that No, it's just that there's a famous book by... Um, the Lampedusa called The Leopard and right. he says in it for everything that remains the same everything has to change yeah. is that plus the change plus the yeah. Kind of yeah, thing, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Right, going back to your t- timeline when you were in school did you have a love of English right oh yeah yeah, yeah yeah age six seven I was reading Greek mythology really? yeah man yeah. I was up in my little room fighting the Trojan War yeah I was really into reading so I must have been six because it was October 1963. For some reason, I was alone in the kitchen and the radio was on and She Loved Me by The Beatles came on and it was like doing a hit of ecstasy or something. I yeah. mean, it was just... I spent the whole day going, She Loves Me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just went absolutely... So music and books became Your thing. my escape routes. Yeah. And then later on, film. So at school, English, history, a little bit of geography... Mass, no, mass, mass sized. Yeah, same. Te- like, yeah, te- yeah, I mean, technical drawing was hilarious. I remember um, we had this great technical drawing guy, Mr. McSherry. He was like the school hippie. He came up, he said, Paolo, he said, so I've given you 12% for your technical drawing exam. I thought, blimey, that's quite good. So I gave you 10% for getting your name right. <laughs> for drawing your name. <laughs> and football. Yes, football. So how did the football start with you? You look, you look like you'd be a left winger or something. No, I was a Jimmy Greaves. Were you? Yeah, I was like a little Jimmy Greaves. Oh, God, yeah, I was knocking yeah. goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to talk about... Actually, let's segue there. Yeah, go one on. of your books, which I am actually going to get, yeah. because it looks wow. mad, go on. is the book you wrote about the Reading Centre Forward. Oh, uh, Robin Friday. Robin Friday. Yeah. We have a very famous Gavin Friday in Ireland, by the way. I know, I and the amount that. of time people come yeah. and say, how's your Gavin Friday book going? <laughs> He's not in the Virgin the, Prunes. He the, played for exactly, Reading Football Club. The last thing club. I could imagine Gavin Friday doing is playing football. <laughs> um, but to t- tell the tale about this, because I've never, I follow football all my life, yeah. never heard of it. Well, okay, so by this time, it's 1995, and I've hooked up with Oasis, I've met Noel, and we're getting on famously, and blah, 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 and I meet the rest of the band. Everyone's football mad. I go to America to, um, to, to interview them for Select Magazine, I think it was. When I get there, Griggsy says to me, I'm really, really pissed off. And I'm like, why, what's wrong? He said, look at this article. And it was a five-page article in Shoot Magazine yeah. about this guy, Robin Friday. So why are you pissed off? He said, because I know every footballer going, and he does. Yeah. If you said to Griggsy, he played fullback for Russia in the 1954 really World Cup. Really, that deep? Oh, man, he, okay. yeah. I mean, he knows his football, that boy. I said, well, if you want to find out about him, you know, it's funny how these things happen. Like, if that had happened in 94, it probably wouldn't have happened. But 95, they had three months off. 
So, no, 96, they had three months off in the summer. So I said, come on. We'll European Championships were in England. Though, exactly. Yeah. So I said, well, we can go down to Reading and yeah. we'll find out about this guy. And if there's something there, perhaps there's a book. Yeah. But, you know, we'll see. Because I'd never heard of him. But then I realised I had. Where I lived, where the children's home was, was in Woking. And my first football live experience was going to watch Woking play. And the first game I went to was floodlit football. You know, there's nothing like it. Woking would be in the fifth league, right? We were in the Ismian League. Yeah, Ismian League. Yeah. And so were a team called Hayes, yeah, who yeah. Robin played for. Because yeah. I distinctly remember people going, oh, you've got to go to that Hayes game, they've got this amazing player. And that must have been Robin. And I keep on meaning to go back to Woking and look up the result in the um, match report. But anyway... I knew somebody at Reading or however called up Reading and said look can we come and look at your archive right which wasn't digitised it was just dusty room probably as big as this full of volumes right and the thing about the Reading Evening Post was it was daily wasn't weekly not even on microfiche just yeah yeah (laughs) so we just said but the thing was of course was that Gwigsy is in our aces who were just like the biggest thing since whatever so you get these little secretaries coming in. Oh, I've just come. Oh, you're Quixie Francis. Or the funniest one, though, we, we made friends with the guy who wrote about Robin, the sports reporter, the football mm. guy, whose name was Clive the Hound Baskerville. Brilliant. Right? You'd see him on the on the side of buses. Yeah, this yeah. week in the Reading Evening Post, yeah, yeah. Clive the Hound Baskerville. You know, he came in one day and he said, um, he said, the local MP has said that anybody who takes drugs are a degenerate and a and a loser mm-hmm. and Wiggy said well the guy's a complete fucking wanker then isn't he <laughs> we go back next week headline front cover of the paper Gwigsy slams local MP in a yeah. blistering attack <laughs> it was brilliant anyway this story just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger we were right. just like wow okay here he is the Reading have signed this guy oh he's just made his debut oh he's scored an amazing and another amazing oh. now the fans are singing his name and it just got bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger then we started doing interviews we spoke to his family we spoke to Charlie Hurley his manager and Charlie Hurley this to me was the summed up Robin he said I saw him play for Hayes we were bottom of the league we needed a goal scorer and I could see that this guy really had something so I signed him and I had him for a month in the reserves and in that month I found out everything that there was to know about Robin and he said I called him into my office about a month later I said Robin I'm going to give you your debut you're going to play against Northampton this weekend and Robin says to him boss that's great I'll tell you what I won't drink <laughs> I won't go with any women and I won't get into any fights between then and the game and Charlie Hurley went Robin you can lie to me once not three times <laughs> yeah, so and this, that sums up Robin so this guy was just uh, and he got he, he, he actually got voted three times the greatest ever player for Reading and Reading were player a team of the century. Were he was player of the century Premier League. He, was yeah. play, he was player of the century he was for a Reading drinker drug addict yeah. Shagger, Shagger. So he's like George Best. Yeah, no, if George Best Best was a pop star, Robin was a rock star. Do you know what I mean? If George Best was a tremolos, this guy's Led Zeppelin. Do you know what I mean? I mean, he was like full on. Wouldn't go into training until Thursday. And then he left the club under a shadow. He was kicked out, became an asphalter again. Yeah. No, 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 no. What happened was he got Reading promoted and it was the, the summer of 76 which was a really long hot summer yeah. and he had six weeks off and he went crazy and when he came back he was never the fastest player on the pitch yeah. but he'd already he'd lost two yards he said it to Charlie Ellis I've lost two yards and he said yeah it was Jimmy Quinn-esque 
two years previous, he's out on a Friday night till four in the morning, waking up and going and scoring a hat trick. Yeah, yeah. Two years later, it's taken his toll. He's yeah. not scoring a hat trick. No. So now he's becoming a liability. Yeah. Plus, he's probably doing, you know. All sorts. Yeah. And so they, they have to sell him. They sell him to Cardiff. So he, his debut for Cardiff was New Year's Day, 1977, against Fulham. And Bobby Moore plays for Fulham. And do you know what he does? He goes up to Bobby Moore and he goes, Hello, I'm Robin Friday and grabs Bobby Moore's testicles. <laughs> Vinny Jones style. Bobby Moore chases him around the pitch all game and Robin scores two goals. Played 25 games for Cardiff. In that year, 2000, everybody voted for their player of the century, yeah. didn't they? Reading voted him the player of the century. Cardiff voted him their cult footballer of the century. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he won two. The book's more. name is the greatest footballer you never saw. And we're trying to make a film at the moment. That's mm. that's could it just be amazing. Go back to your timeline. You're in school. You're yeah. enjoying school. You're enjoying writing. When did you kind of go? Hang on a second. I could probably make a go of this. When I was 14 years old, and I walked into the school common room and found Enzo Esposito reading a newspaper called The Enemy, and I said, "What's that?" And he said, it's a paper about music. And I'd never heard of such a thing. To me, newspapers were the Daily Mirror, yeah. Pete Wilson on the yeah. sports column. What, what are you on about? It's a paper about music. What, just about music? Yeah. Well, it's just, for fuck's sake, read it. You know? yeah. And I read the anime and the light went on. I thought, that is what I want to do in life. I mean, at the children's home, there was a record shop in Woking called Airco's. And the guy there... It was lovely and he used to records they, they didn't sell he'd bring up to the home they just oh we can't get rid of these you yeah. have them quite the collection then after a while yeah but it was right across the board yeah it was like Fiddler on the Roof I remember yeah. that saying The Dubliners where the Dubliners greatest yeah. hits uh, The Faces not as good as a, do you know what I mean mm. I mean it was just and then a mate of mine who had joined the children's home Des Hurrian God rest his soul he was 14, 15, I was 12. He had a bit of money, so he'd be going to record shops and buying imports. Here's this band, they're called Steely Dan. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Colin Nolly, who was a hippie, had the Woodstock triple album. Listen to this, this guy called Jimi Hendrix. You know, and then Bowie happened. You just uh, subsumed I, yourself in music. Yeah, and s- Sunday nights, we'd all gather around the radio. Bowie better be number one. Radio Fucking hell, Queen. No, it was the Radio 1. Radio the one, top, yeah, top, yeah, top 30, 10, yeah. yeah. Fucking hell. Fucking Benny Hill's number one. I'd be depressed for a week. Yeah, I'd be depressed. <laughs> you know, I'd wake up thinking, fucking Benny Hill. Uh, you know, face you should be number one. Did you start writing then? No. I started writing about it when, well, what happened was punk happened and fat fanzines happened. That's when I began writing. But even before that, Sean, I went to the Reading Festival in 1973, 16 years old, and Sounds newspaper have a tent, and I go in there and ask for a job. Can I come and write for you? The guy was like, "What are you, loony?" Like, did you go and write reviews of records before, so you could say, "Here's the sort of stuff I no, wrote." Just no, go, no, give no. me a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I was obsessed with obsessed with the enemy, obsessed with anything to do with music. I mean, it so was, what was the break then? The break was that basically yeah. after I left the children's home, I went to live with a friend of mine, Pete Garland, and there was this big office equipment factory. They made office equipment, and I went to work there, and I thought, I have to get out Woking. Everyone in Woking says that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Woking. Yeah. So I applied to college. One well, thing before you talk about that yeah. is the, the amount of people who are, say, 17 or 18 or 16, yeah. or whatever age you were, who have to check with their parents what they want mm. to do. Mm. Like, you're just there. Yeah. Like, what, eventually the school goes, right, off you go. Yeah, well, I did a second book called But We All Shine On, where I found four of the kids in the children's zone. But I write about it in there. I was completely free. I didn't have mum and dad going, no, 
you going to London to be a music exactly. Robert. Yeah, what are you all about? You're, yeah. you're, you're going to university and then, or you're going to go and work in that shop over there, or yeah. this is what yeah. you're doing. I had none of that. Were you very independent? No, what I was was very determined. I was obsessed with it. That's what you've got to have. You've got to have the obsession. If you have the obsession, everything was music. Going into the Woking Market and buying bootlegs or, you know, going to the rough trade shop. It was just that. Everything was based around it. I had to get to London. Yeah. way to get to London was to join a college. I got into North London Poly and to my absolute delight discovered that they sold the enemy at Camden Town. Tube station on a Tuesday lunchtime. We didn't get it till Thursday in Woking. Wow, <laughs> this is like the best thing ever. Education was free at that time. I had a grant. I had a place in some resident halls. I used to, uh, Tuesday lunchtime, straight down to Camden, get the enemy. Yeah. Anyway, I'd get down there one way. Sorry, mate, sold out. What? Sold out. What are you on about sold out? I'm gone in. What, you only got any out back? No, we ain't. So I bought Melody Maker. Now, at the same time, I'm writing, this now I'm writing, I'm writing for the college newspaper called Fuse, it was. Bands, album mm. reviews, blah, blah, blah. Get Melody Maker home, I'm really pissed off. Only it up, advert, young writers wanted. I thought, oh. First yeah. time you bought it. Yeah. So I cut out the stuff I've done for Fuse, I put it in an envelope, I write a letter, I send it off. And I think, don't be stupid, pal, I know. On Thursday, I get a phone call. Hi, this is Melody Maker, would you like to come in for a... Uh, wow. And on Friday night, I'm in the editor's office. Looking up, let me tell you, at a poster of the Italian football team from 1970 and saying, the editor, do you like football? And he said, yeah. I said, well, I'm half Italian and that's who I supported in the World Cup final when we lost 4-1 to Brazil. So we got on very well. And they started giving me live reviews to do. That was June of 78 by September of 79. I had so much work from Melody Maker, I couldn't. You know, I'd be going into cars and they'd be going, have you got your essay about humour in Shakespeare? I'd be going, no, but I've got Jerry Dammer's interview. If that's any good to you. Yeah. You're making a few bucks. I was getting by. And then what happened? Melody Maker went on strike for six weeks. When oh. they came back, a few of the staff had left and they offered me a staff job. So in 1980, I was been at college for a year. And here I was at Melody Maker. I mean, that must have been a dream come true for you. Since you were 12? Yeah, 14. Yeah. 14. No, he, no, okay. it wasn't, because it, it wasn't the end of me. I hated Melody Maker. Yeah, the reason right. I hated Melody Maker was because it was really old-fashioned still. And I'd be trying, why are you putting Sons on the cover? Look, yeah. there's this band, they're called Madness. No, you know, no, no, no. You got to work for your Music Express, though, eventually, right? By this time, I'd become friends with Paul Weller. In summer of 82, he said, I'm going to split the band up, will you write our bio? So what I did was... So that's the jam being split up. Yeah. Right. And he was forming the Star Council then with Nick Tolbert. Well, no, he wasn't forming the Star Council then, but he decided right. to end the jam. Talk to me a bit about the jam now that we're on. Well, I used to sit around Woking. Oh, they, yeah. they were like Woking's band. One thing about them, what a dreadful name for a band. <laughs> I used to think, oh, God, I could just see them sitting around the table. Yeah, going, well, it's we've... the way you... But I never think it would like No, that. you don't. No, I just say it. When, when you're not known, you just think, God. But they're you, almost more powerful than the name. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. You, you, and actually, Oasis is a shit name as well. Yeah, because <laughs> you look around, you think, you know you know how the, the thought process went. Mm. Somebody was sitting around at a table, and I, and it, I found this out. Well, we've had bread, we've had the marmalade, <laughs> we said the jam. Yeah. You know, it's horrible. We must set up a band called Butter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Anchor. <laughs> um and I used to see them around town. They were a five-piece band. They were playing R&B covers, pre-punk. I met, I met Weller. There was another Woking band called Squire. Enzo Suzito, who was reading The Enemy when I came in, yeah. he was in 
squire. I had a part-time job at a shoe shop called Curtis, and he bought Paul up. Young Americans buy Bowies everywhere. Yeah. Everyone's wearing flares, high heel shoes, yeah. stack shoes, they were called, tank tops. Yeah. And there's this guy standing before me in a parka with white yeah. socks and stay pressure. And I, I thought, yeah, and I thought, we were wearing that three years ago. What is this guy? Do you know what I mean? We're fucking... What? And it was all this, what, 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 what? It's all right. that. Yeah, what, what? And then I'd see him around town and he'd pull up, he'd go, you're Paolo, aren't you? I'd go, yeah. He said, uh, you're Enzo's mate. That was it. You're Enzo's mate, aren't you? I said, hello, Paul, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, how are you? Yeah, all right, all right, all right, all right. All right. <laughs> boom, off you go on your scooter. Two months later, boom, boom. you're Enzo's mate, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, seen Enzo? No, yeah, all right, all right. Anyway, this goes on, yeah. this kind of grunting for yeah. about two years. And then in April of 77, I walk into the Cottage Hotel pub, which is where we used to drink, having on the Wednesday bought the enemy with the jam on the cover, on the Thursday seen them on top of the pops. And you've got to remember, just being on telly that day was a big deal. It was, wow, you know, I was... And then on Friday, I walk in the car and he's sitting there on his own, Paul. And I just turned away like that and I thought, what do I do here? If I say hello, he might think I'm just saying hello because he was on the cover of the enemy. And but if I don't say hello... Or you could say it all right. Yeah. You know, but if I don't say hello, he might just think I'm being rude. Yeah. So I'm just standing there at the bar. What do I do? What do I do? I've got a real pop star here. Do you yeah. know what I mean? This yeah. guy's like come from Woking. Yeah. He's on the cover. Yeah. What do I do? And I hear him. You're Enzo's mate, aren't you? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> we got very drunk that night. Anyway, I by now in 1980 or 1979, I'd, I'd done a piece about the jam, which everybody really liked. So Paul had asked me to write the book. I got Tony Stewart, who was an editor at NME, to edit it. So that kind of got me into the NME world. When did you join NME? In 1983, because right. Tony said to me, oh, by the way, we, as I was hoping, he said, we've got some staff agencies coming up, why don't you apply? And I applied and got the job. So was that first day at NME? First day at NME, do you know what I thought? I've made it. No. No? Is that all there is? Yeah. <laughs> you were very happy. No. No? No, because I write about this in the books. You have this vision. it's all illusion right Right. it's all illusion because I used to have this thing I used to think I used to look at pictures of enemy writers and think wouldn't it be great you know they look so cool and if I was standing there like I'm one of them and somebody comes hey Paolo great article man really good and it happened you know I was standing in the enemy office and a guy came oh great article but it's just illusion because it's I thought if I joined the enemy, all my problems would go away. But they didn't. You've got to remember, I'm from a children's home. I've been kicked the shit out all, yeah. all the time by my foster mother. I've got serious problems, which I think by joining the enemy is going to... Magically disappear. And of course they're not. Yeah. But isn't it better than not joining the Yeah, enemy? absolutely. Yeah. And I'm not putting it down, but I remember <laughs> just thinking, because I'd spent all this time obsessing, obsessing, oh, the enemy, the enemy. And you, when you get there, you've got a bunch of guys in them. How was your mental health like? I'll tell you something. In 1984, at the enemy, my jam book had come out to great acclaim, was selling like hotcakes. I was seeing a very beautiful blonde girl called Claire. I was quite well known, I was financially fine, and I was with a very good friend of mine, Pete Barrett, and Pete said, God, your life must just be great, Paolo. You've done this, you've got this. And I felt like shit, because I was depressed. I had real low self esteem. I used to think all oh, my writing was crap. If people came up to me and said, I like, oh, I really like that piece you did, I think, why do you fucking like it? It's crap, you know. 
I, I was so yeah. low on confidence, so low on self So you had that gnome inside who was saying you're not good enough and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. And but that, that was a time when you had to hide stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't talk about yeah. that because yeah. I wouldn't know who to talk to about yeah. it. He was just saying, you know, I'd lie awake at night thinking, oh, God, they're going to... It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And it went on till the early 90s. Really? So yeah. 10 years? Yeah, it was 10 years of, you know, and everybody, and also the thing was, Sean, I was very shy. And everybody thought I was arrogant yeah, because yeah. people kind of think, oh, he's Paolo from the enemy and I'd yeah. be, right, be like that. It's a quite a nice story about the time you met Paul Weller, you know. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. 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 Did you get out of the funk or what happened? I read a book called You Can Heal Your Life. In, in it, even though there was a lot I was kind of, I was resistant to, there was one line in there which said, you spend your time telling yourself you're dreadful. Why don't you spend your time telling yourself you're wonderful? And I thought, oh, yeah, and I just started doing that. And suddenly I thought, oh, okay. And then I thought, you know what? You've had 10 years of people saying to you that you're a good writer. One of them's got to be right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, you are a good writer. I mean, if you're, right, if you're getting articles and I know, yeah, I, know yeah. I know, I know, I know. But it was just, I, I was just so hard on myself. Mm. And I write about this in Calling Me Father. I talk about this, and I still do, this obsession with Robert De Niro. Because De Niro was like my God. He yeah. was like the one. I would read about, like, for The Godfather, he went to Sicily and, yeah. and learned Sicilian. I thought I'm going to learn Italian. But I would give up after three, and then it was just a way of whipping myself. And see, see how you rubbish you that. are? You can't, can't do yeah. that. You're fucking rubbish. You are. You're a loser. Even this thing you talked about upstairs before we started, that you like to do two things. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Keep, and focus on those. Yeah, yeah, one, one, if, if possible. Yeah. So this book came out, the book that changed your life was, was in the 90s when you read it. Yeah, yeah. In that intervening period, you then yeah. started pumping at nearly a book every two years, right? <laughs> no, more than less than that, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, but look, for me, writing has always been one of the great joys of my life. You lose yourself. When you write, you lose yourself. When you're... All that matters, you can have the biggest problems in the world, but you start writing your book, and all that matters is, am I getting this right? And the thing about books is, if you do them properly... You wake up thinking about them, you have breakfast thinking about them, you spend your day writing and working on them, and you go to bed thinking about them. Mm. And then you wake up thinking about them, that's what, that's what you have to do. Kind of everything else kind of goes away. <laughs> I remember when I did my first Oasis book, which was 125,000 words long, and took me about 11 months of getting up at 7 in the morning and working till like 1 in the morning. I remember after it was finished, and it was like I didn't know I didn't know who I was or what to do with myself. You yeah. know, I've been so consumed this thing. How did the Oasis thing happen? Because um, I, I met Noel. Noel knew who I was because I'd written that jam book. Mm-hmm. Uh, they played the Astoria, and I, I met him after that. So you're Paolo, I loved your jam book. So he was a big jam fan. So and then he lived down the road from me. It turned out, and he said, "Why don't you come around and watch football?" So I used to go around and watch football and kind of spy. What's your take it. on that whole Noel Liam thing and what's happened? Um, I think to myself it was always bound to why Liam wants to reform Oasis I'll never know why should you you've just had a number one album which is outsold to brothers and Noel I think is from my hear is very happy doing what he's doing he can go wherever he wants so yeah. why you know I mean it was there was that time when, when Oasis it was and massive. Blur and all that oh, look man I'll tell you what right when I was on tour with them the best gigs Dublin mm. really <sighs> Point Depot. Yeah, Point, point Depot. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was like one of your own were coming back. Do you know what I mean? That mm. Irish connection. Yeah, yeah. Dublin went mad. They were outside the hotel every night singing Oasis songs all night yeah. long. Yeah, well, I wonder. Yeah, what I, I know. Mean. But it was a, it was a, it was amazing. England and Britain was a sort of a 
was charging yeah, around then, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it was great. Know? I mean, it was a, it probably, if you talk about the 70s jam and all that stuff, it wasn't quite, it, didn't, it clicked then, yeah, I think, or yeah, something. You yeah, know? And yeah. Ireland was staring over and we were trying to desperately scrabble up the, up the sort of ladder as well. Which I an Irish group, I really, and I always meant to look into them more, it was Ash, Ash or not. Ash, yeah, they were they're, very they're good. Yeah, yeah. They were, they? you know, you two went and did their thing and there was always this thing about who's going to ride the coattails. So there was yeah. Hot As Flowers, Ash, there, yeah. was a, there was a lot of bands that nearly into a new... Gavin, Robin Friday. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the greatest um, musician you never one, saw. One, one of the other things that you we have to talk about is your you love fashion. We talk, you talked about the... Oh, you it all stems from the children's zone because basically when those friends of mine all became suede heads, I didn't have the money. But those clothes fascinated me because suddenly... Young boys had become men, you know, us little teenagers, Sunday, they look like men. Wow. You know, the suits, yeah, yeah. And they're crombies, and, but I didn't have the money to buy it, and I was so sort of, you know, and this intensity. So that when I got money, which is when I started working for Melody Maker, I just kept buying that stuff. I kind of bought the stuff, you know, because I couldn't have it six years earlier, so I bought it now, you know. But you wrote a book then about the. Beatles style, which is yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I like, I, that, that, usually, by the time you get to the end of a book, you're thinking, "Oh, just get me to the end now." But that book, I hated finishing. I yeah, loved it. You said you would have. Yeah, I yeah, it was just brilliant. It's amazing when you think about the Beatles, the sheer output that they managed in yeah. such a short period. Of it's time. unbelievable. You feel like they were around for thirty years. They were around for what ten? Yeah, well, fifty-eight to sixty-eight, yeah. really. Yeah. And I mean, recording sixty-two to. And think 70. about it. They, they're doing, you know, an album, two albums a year, yeah. plus singles, plus tours. And the images of the beards and the and the caftans and the sergeant peppers and the yeah. You know, the, the, well, they changed the, all the time. Yeah. I mean, and that book was great because it kind of gave you different insights into them. For example, when Pete Best said, when I first saw the Beatles, they were walking down the road, I could tell by the way Lennon dressed, he was the leader. And when they made Sergeant Pepper, they had all those clothes in the studio yeah. as kind of sources of inspiration. Yeah. And, and this guy said to me, he worked at Apple, he said, I knew Apple was over. Shall I tell you what day it was? He said, I said, what? He went, the day Paul McCartney came in wearing a suit. Because no one wore suits up until then, but then he did. And if you wore a suit in '68, that was like you were a businessman, and it was like, I'm now going to stop this yeah. money hemorrhaging yeah. away. Yeah. Do you do you have any truck with the Beatles Rolling Stones thing? That the thing about the Stones is, it's obviously great songs and blah blah blah, but they've never been as interesting because all they were interested in is doing drugs and shagging loads of girls. You know, they've always stayed in that kind of decadent. Thing, whereas the Beatles were like they R and B, and then yeah. they were Sergeant Pepper, and yeah. then they were Revolver, and then they were into Indian I mean, Maharashi. To do that in yeah, 1967, to say we're going to give up drugs and follow this strange little Indian, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wow, you know, the whole world followed. And them. I find it embarrassing the Rolling Stones still performing, you know, at yeah. the moment. Yeah, it's just you and me, let's go. Well, the trouble you have, and I, I thought about it, and I think about this as about McCartney, is they can't give it up because yeah. if they give it up, they've got no identity. If Mick Jagger, I mean, I'm sure Mick Jagger's a century of money, right? But, it, or Paul McCartney, but they wouldn't be... You know, their, ide their identities yeah. are so mixed up with who the, their public and their personal thing that they can't extricate themselves. Yeah. So Paul McCartney can go, you know what, I've done my bit, I'm going to stay at home. Because he wouldn't have people going, 
Right, Paul, we're going to talk. But he does it in a way that's more elegant for his age. Well, he does, you but know, what I'm saying is they, they can't give it up. They yeah. just can't it's let like it... Drug can, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's ego. What about the whole drug thing? Is that uh, worse now or that bad then? Or was it as, was it over-reported or all no, the time? No, really. It was, more, it was more hype, was it? Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about Oasis, I mean, no, no would say things with Brez, oh, yeah, when I got up in the morning, I sprinkle cocaine on my cornflakes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. What about music today? Are you? I don't really listen. Yeah, I like. When did it all stop? Sometime in the nineties, I think. Well, basically, what? Yeah, and also, I just kind of get to a point where I've heard so much music now that I think, oh yeah, somebody go, you got to hear this new track? Yeah. Go, oh, okay. And you go, yeah, that's uh, the Beach Boys mixed with the oh, Velvet yeah, Underground yeah, 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 yeah. with Sly Stone. I think it was probably the end of when albums stopped. So there was a brief flare with uh, things like Kasabian. Uh, Mezzanine by Massive Attack, right, right. Uh, Tom York and Radiohead, uh, and there were there was a there was a brief period where there were some amazing albums, and then yeah. it just sort of dropped off a cliff. I got, you know, we one guy, rap. one there's two guys at the moment. If I'm going to play music, because basically I'm really into, I've kind of reignited my film hmm. because I'm trying to write scripts at the moment. Because hmm. for me, books are finished, apart from Calling Me Father. But if there's two guys. That is John Coltrane and Van Morrison. Right. Yeah. People of an Ireland have a love hate with him because yeah. he, he, he has an arrogance. Now he is a he is an undoubtedly a genius. Yeah, without uh, But he has this arrogance about him that a lot of people get turned off by. Um, I love his spiritual stuff. You yeah. see, that's what I go for. He's going down in history in Ireland as God. You know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's the thing is about Van is is that he's got such a vast body of work. Astral Weeks and Moondance, I think, overshadowed a lot of his work. So every time you put an hour, oh, it's not as good as Astral Weeks. But somebody like me comes along and goes, yeah, I like Astral Weeks singing, but this track here, wow, it works. And this one here, and Hints from the Silence, and what's this to, on Hindford Street, and woo, 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 you know, yeah. all that stuff. Wow, man. Do you think music will ever get back? No. I, I, a friend of mine said this, and I think it's really true. He said, imagine classical music, right? That, that was the yeah. dominant musical form. Yeah. And it petered out and jazz petered out and pop will one day peter out you know Uh, one of the things I like to ask people uh, is what they'd say to their younger self let's talk about your new book because you did it for your younger self yeah I did yeah talk to me about I've got two children I've got daughter of 30 and I've got uh, Rafi who came along three and a half years ago now and I kind of kept thinking when he was born oh am I going to write about this am I going to write about this but there was nothing until it was his first birthday. And we were in this room uh, at home and it was a birthday cake had been brought in and, Pitt and all my friends were around and blah, blah, blah. And they, his mum was carrying him, but with, her, with his back to everyone. And they sang him happy birthday and then they applauded. And he'd never heard applause before. He turned around this expression on his face and I thought, God, you've never heard applause before. It just triggered something in me. And I just started writing about that party. And then I just kind of kept it going. Because I was his main carer from when he was one till now. My wife would go to work and I would take Rafi to these what called stay and plays nurseries in the yeah. morning, feed him at lunchtime, then we'd go to the park or do whatever we do. And I realised that there was this kind of healing going on for me. There really was. The thing is, Sean, people used to say to me about happy childhood, right? which obviously I didn't have. I had a very, very, very unhappy childhood. But happy childhood to me was really abstract. Mm. It was like you might as well be talking in Did Russian. Did you ever get to your dad? No. No. Right. But 
when Rafi came along, I started seeing a happy childhood because he was having a happy childhood. He's a really happy little kid. He he smiles and he always wants to have fun. And I thought, oh my God, this is a happy childhood. So now I could see a happy childhood. I could understand a happy childhood. Then it could become yeah, mine in some way. Yeah, I loved your quote. I mean, it's so fucking simple. Yeah. Uh, a quote you said about being a dad is like he's walking in front of you and he looks behind yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My there. mate, my mate told me that. He it's said, "Lovely, isn't it?" Yeah, it was Pete Barrett again. He's. Uh, I was. I was going around to everyone going, "What do I do? I'm a father. Yeah. What do I do?" And finally, Pete said, "Paolo, I had the best dad in the world. And when I had my first card, I was as scared as you are. All I know is this: when they're walking in front of you, when they turn around, make sure you're there." Yeah. yeah the advi- no, sorry. The advice to my younger self would be: don't worry, it will be all right. And what about the world that we live in? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Uh, as I say in the book, um, there's a song from New York, New York, De Niro, Lizanelli film, called The World Keeps Turning. It will keep turning. Don't worry. Yeah. The thing to do, and what I'm saying to Rafi is, when you start off, you want to change the world. You think, this is wrong, and I'm going to change it, blah, blah, blah. By the time you're 50. What you have to do is change yourself. So tell me why a father should buy this book. Because it, because it's a good read. I was just hoping that if fathers read it, they would go, yeah, I feel like that. I think the most important thing, or some of the most important things for me in art, whether that be a film, a music, or books, is that you watch it and you go, ah, oh, I'm not the only one who thinks like that. Yeah, true. I'm, I'm giving people goosebumps. Yeah. I, when I write about De Niro in, in Colour Me Father, I'm talking about him because when I watched him, I thought... Oh, thank God for that. I'm not the only one. And he kind of made it all right. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay to be an outsider. It's okay to be a fuck-up. It's okay to have all these crazy thoughts. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. You know, it's a lonely place to be sometimes, you know. But it's okay. Hello, pleasure to be here. No, it's been great. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much for being on the show. And no, thank you. Look after yourself. And look By the way, part of my Colour Me Father book, I did a DNA test and I'm 12% Irish. There you go. Come over. Everyone in England wants to be Irish now. Of course, yeah, well, of course. You're fucking in the EU, aren't you? There's a link at the bottom of the podcast to how to buy Paolo's book. Uh, Fathers, go buy it. Yeah, thank you. Look after yourself, Chief. You as well, my man.